So we're continuing tonight with our look at the book of Philippians. And the question I want to put before you as we start is, how do we have true community? Uh, communities, it's kind of all the rage in our world today, not just in the church, but outside of the church as well. We've got lots of gadgets and lots of ways of keeping in touch, but for some reason we seem to be worse and worse, or getting worse and worse at actually connecting with people and finding, uh, a, finding a kind of identification with others in our lives, a connection with other people. So the question is, how do we find true community? And um, so we're, we're, we're hungering for this both outside the church, but I think for those of us who might be more comfortable and familiar in the church, that we'd say that we also hunger for this inside the church as well, that we've often been a part of the church community that has been somewhat lacking in its understanding of being family and being uh, together in life. Uh, actually living life together and having some kind of meaning beyond just the occasional Sunday that we come to worship or a Wednesday night that we go to small group. And we've, we've actually talked about this. I think this is an appropriate question for us as a community, as we've, this church plant has gotten going, as we've wondered, well, how can we truly be family together in a city like Boston? We often give answers for why we can't, um, like busyness, which is a big one. Um, this is something that prevents us from actually living life together. Or other things like, like sin, just the simple brokenness of human life, that it, it, for some reason, for all of our desire to be together, um, you just look at marriage as the prime example of this, that for some reason we find it harder and harder and harder the closer we get to actually be together and be rooted together in life. Um, so there's, there's a number of answers that we give as to why community might not happen. But I'd suggest to you that the passage that we're coming to tonight, we're moving out of the greeting we just did two verses last week. We looked at this, this greeting where Paul was locating the lives of the Philippians to whom he's writing, this church that he founded about 12 years before he's writing this letter, and his own life in the sphere or the realm of Jesus Christ, the, the true Lord, the world's true Lord. And what we, we did a little bit was unpack some of that narrative and what that means um, for Paul and his audience, for his recipients of the letter, in, to, in terms of where they look at their lives. Now we're moving beyond that to this next step where it's a still introductory, but he's giving thanks. This kind of effusive, convoluted way of giving thanks for the people to whom he's writing. And I would suggest that in these verses, we're looking at verses 3 to 8 in chapter 1, that we see a different kind of answer to this question of, how you have true community together in life. What we see when we look at this relationship between Paul and the Philippians is we see a, a real warmth and affection kind of like flowing off of the page here. Look at verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, uh, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Then verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way. There's an emotive word, to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And then in verse 8, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These are signs of a real warmth, a real friendship, a real fellowship between Paul and the people to whom he's writing. Now, my guess is you probably wouldn't use that same language to describe the person you're sitting next to right now, especially if you don't know them very well and you're not married to them. Um, but that's not something that we probably find to be normative in the church today, that, kind, that sense of warmth and affection. But Paul's a kind of effusive about it here in terms of his relationship with the Philippians. And what I want to say is this kind of affection and warmth for Paul and the Philippians is, out, is absolutely rooted in a costly and consistent partnership in the gospel, a costly and consistent 
partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 5. He says he's making all these prayers with joy, giving thanks to God for the Philippians. Why? What's the ground of this joyful prayer of Paul's? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in verse 7, he goes on to say, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And then why? For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, the joy, the warmth, the affection that Paul is expressing here to the Philippian church is arising out of not just some kind of goodwill toward them, but out of this deeply shared vocation as God's people to be on mission together. That's what roots the affection. That's what roots the warmth. That's what roots what we read about here in these early verses of Philippians. They're partners with him in the gospel. When are they partners? From the first day until now. From 12 years ago, when you heard the gospel for the first time, you heard this good news of what God is doing in Jesus. They began that day to participate. Hearing the truth of the gospel led them to participate, be partners, partakers in the spread of the gospel with Paul in his mission. So from the first day, I think that we could serve a lesson for the church today, actually, when we talk about welcoming people into the family of God. Sometimes we're so timid. Sometimes we just kind of want to baby step, baby step, baby step. What Paul says, actually, from the first day that you heard this message, you were active participants with me in the, in the work of the gospel, in the spreading of the gospel around the world. And what was the nature of this partnership in the gospel? Well, if we read on in Philippians, we'll get there eventually in chapter 4. Paul notes the fact that the Philippians, the church in Philippi, had contributed to his ministry financially. So there was very much so a sense in which they had foregone some other pleasures that they could have enjoyed with their funds and given them over to Paul, the apostle, to support his call and his mission in the world to proclaim the gospel. So they had supported him financially. They had um, had a bold witness themselves in Philippi. We learn later in chapter 1 that they're suffering for the sake of Jesus, just like Paul is. Paul's suffering. He's in chains. He's in Rome. He's, he's imprisoned. He doesn't know his future. And, he, and they, too, are sharing in the suffering. He says, you've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel later in chapter 1. So they're providing a bold witness. That's part of their partnership as well. And they've also sent an envoy from Philippi to Rome, which is a kind of a risky thing to do to send to a prisoner of the empire. They've sent Epaphroditus, their friend, their brother, to go encourage him, to be with him, to be, in a sense, a, a present reminder of this fellowship that they enjoy with Paul. And that was a costly thing. They probably supported Epaphroditus to make the journey, to get him there, to spend time there. And, and Epaphroditus is the one who's delivering this letter back to the Philippians. So there's been a partnership at a lot of different levels for them in, in the gospel. So the question I want to ask you, that's, in essence, what I see really driving out of the text for us here tonight, is what happened to Paul and what happened to the church in Philippi when they encountered the gospel? What happened to them? What took place in their lives? We looked a little bit last week at this term that Paul uses to introduce himself to the church in Philippi. Douloi, slaves or servants, slaves. What happened to the church, the people in Philippi who responded to this message about a crucified Messiah that was foolishness? Who would believe in a crucified king? Who would believe in somebody who was, who was executed at the hands of the great empire Rome, where Caesar was Lord? Who would believe in this person called Jesus? But they heard that message and they responded. Something in their hearts was quickened. And they were never the same. They were made slaves of this crucified king. 
And to become a slave of someone else means that you don't have your own wishes anymore. It means that you don't have your own will anymore. It means that you're not pursuing your own ambitions and your own dreams and your own goals anymore. But it means that you have become once you become single-minded, you have now a singular focus as a slave of someone else to do their bidding, to please your master. And this is what's going on in the life of Paul, who was uh, encountering God in a dramatic way on the Damascus Road as he was persecuting the church in Jesus. He, was, he encountered God and he literally took a 180 and transformed from persecuting the people who followed Jesus to actually teaching and giving his life to the people who follow Jesus. So he had encountered him and become his slave, become his servant. And this is also what happens to the church in Philippi. We know that because of their partnership with Paul in a costly way in the gospel. They too have seen themselves no longer as their own, but as belonging to another. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, he says, and he died for all. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but who, for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says it quite plainly there. We don't have a will of our own anymore. We're not living for ourselves anymore, but we're living for the one who died for us and who was raised up to new life and in whom we too have been raised so that he can say later in chapter one, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't have a life of my own anymore. He says it elsewhere in Colossians, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your self-direction, uh, your self-will self has been tamed. It's been surrendered to the authority of the true Lord, and you've been made a slave. So that's what's happened in the gospel being proclaimed in Paul's own life as an apostle now, a slave of Jesus, and in the lives of the people in Philippi who've heard this and found their hearts strangely warmed, as Wesley said, strangely warmed, quickened, because of hearing this message of Jesus. So much so that Paul can say in verse 7, that you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, and this is a legal pun, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Where's Paul? He's in prison. Whose defense and confirmation should he be worried about? His own. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. He didn't know what the future held for him. And what was his focus? What was his concern? What was his passion in that setting? It was for not his own defense, but it was for the defense of the gospel, the very reason that he was put in prison. He saw his own life as tied up intricately in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's how much this was his life now, his passion, his enthusiasm was to live for this one thing. So they're slaves to do their master's bidding. What is their master bidding? What is Jesus bidding of us as his children? What is he calling us to? This might be best summarized. You could probably go a lot of places. But I think the place you could go that would best summarize Jesus' bidding upon his followers is at the end of Matthew's Gospel, what we know of as the Great Commission. Go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The commission, the bidding of the one to whom we are slaves is to go on mission. Go out, serve, make disciples. This is your, this is your commission. This is what you've been bid to do. And this is what Paul understands. And this is what the church in Philippi understands, that they are partners together in the mission 
of their Lord and Master Jesus. They're partners. They're partners for this mission in the defense and confirmation of the gospel to remove all the obstacles to believing in Jesus and also to confirm the truth of the gospel through their life together. As Jesus says in John 13, by your love for one another, they will know that you're my followers. That's how they'll confirm and defend. They'll do this as partners and they'll do this with great cost, won't they? They'll take up this commission in a costly manner. Paul's in prison in chains. He's forgone his freedom. He's forgone his ability to determine his own future, even what he thought was his God-given future to preach to the people in Europe. He's forgone those things for the sake of obedience to Jesus. The Philippians have forgone a life of relative comfort, maybe obscurity, getting by, live and let live, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in their setting in a Roman colony in Philippi. And they're suffering for this, for, for this, for this reason. Because they've taken Jesus' bidding to be on mission at his word, and they've followed in obedience. So this is a costly kind of partnership that they have. They've, they've forgone their own financial well-being or so, storing up to support this one who's been called to preach and to send him out. So that there's a costliness to this partnership. The principle at work here between Paul and the Philippians is this, that the community of the people of God enables its members to live out their restored and renewed lives in Jesus as witnesses to Christ and to his gospel to bring glory to his name. Do you see what's happening? That The Philippians are supporting Paul, who's been given a call to preach the gospel. And they're giving him money. And they're sending somebody to encourage him. And they're doing this not to make Paul reach his full potential as a human being. That's not our purpose. That's the old world. But they're doing this because they see in Paul this opportunity that they have to bring glory to their master and savior Jesus through supporting his work and his ministry. Now, not everybody in the room here is called to be a preacher, and no one so far as I know is called to be an apostle. Um, what this doesn't mean is that therefore the only valid ways of living out your life, your renewed life in Jesus, is to become an evangelist, like a you know, traditional sense of an evangelist, somebody who goes out and, and just preaches the gospel. It certainly does mean that you would have a way of giving a defense for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, and that you'd find words to do that. But what this means is that all of us, to what we have been called, whether you're called to be an artist or a business person or uh, a day laborer or a student right now, that might define many of you in this room, I think, um, whatever it is that you've been called to right now by God, that that vocation that God has given you is to be used to bring glory and honor to his name. It's to be used to bear witness to Jesus. And bearing witness to Jesus means all kinds of different things. It could be in the way that you, you take up your labor under his lordship and do whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, as Paul says in Colossians again, that you're doing all that you do to give glory to this one, to bear witness to this one. In other words, you're doing what you do no longer under Christ for your own advancement, for your own security, for your own glory, for your own comfort, or for your own fame. Everything that you do is done for his glory, and it's done to bear witness to him. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to paint, if you're an artist, that doesn't mean you have to paint scenes of the church worshiping and you know, do Christian art. 
It doesn't mean that you have to be engaged in something explicitly so. God is the God of all creation. God made everything. And when we engage with, in, what, with, in what we're called to engage in, and we do it under his lordship and consistent with his heart and his just love for justice and mercy and peace, we bear witness to him. The principle at work in the Philippians and Paul and the principle that should be at work in the Church of the Cross is that the community of God gathers around the people of God and empowers and enables them to go into the world in all boldness and with all courage to do what God has made you alone uniquely to do so that you can bear witness to Jesus in this world. That's the principle that's at work. But the driving force behind it is that we're on mission. And that whatever it is that God has called you to do, he didn't call you to do it for yourself. He called you to do it for him. And as the Philippians and as Paul embrace this call, this missionary call of their master on their lives, what happens to their relationship? It deepens. It warms up. There's an affection that grows. So that Paul can say that what he says in in verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do we want to be truly a community? Do we want to have that kind of connection and warmth and affection in our relationships with one another? Let me say that we can never have that community if we have a misunderstanding of the gospel. If we think that the truth about Jesus, and this is really prevalent today, is is to meet my needs. And so that the church is constructed around my needs, my flourishing, my fulfillment. And these things certainly happen in, in Jesus. They happen to us. If you're just here investigating Jesus, asking questions, these things happen. We become full. We become who we were made to be. But if the church organizes its life around this principle of meeting my needs or meeting your needs or being just for me, then we'll never know true community. We'll never know the depth of bonds and fellowship that come from being fellow slaves of Christ and sent on mission. We'll never know it. And you know, if the Philippians had thought that this is what the gospel is all about, they would have heard it. They'd have said, thank you very much. I've got my needs met, and now I'm going to go my own way. And that's what happens, isn't it, in so much of the church today. We hear these, this news, Jesus meets my needs, it's all about my needs, and I go my own way. And there's no yoking, there's no commissioning. There's no walking hand in hand for the purposes of Jesus. We just go our own way. So if we don't understand that the gospel leads us into a a divine service together, every one of us, not one of us has a way of getting out from under the call of our master. And nobody's role is more or less important. If we don't understand that the gospel leads us to this, then we'll never have true community in the church. The Philippians' lives didn't get easier. They got harder by the world's standards. They started suffering. But everything that they gained, and Paul goes on to this later in the letter, and we'll get into it later, was worth far more than what they lost because they gained Jesus. So it's not a social thing, the church. It's not a therapeutic thing. It's a truth, missional thing that gospel leads us to. And that brings true community. We'll never have true community in the church if we don't understand the costs of this kind of partnership in the gospel. In other words, true community is not built by having a latte with somebody once a month. (laughs) To put it in terms we might be able to understand. True community doesn't happen by just kind of getting together every once in a while. We sometimes enter into the life of the church 
far more thinking about our own sort of expectations of what the church is going to be in my life and my own sort of boundaries about what I'm going to do and not do in the life of the church and the community. And I don't mean to say that there's not some very good wisdom in those things. I do. But I want to say that if we enter into the community of the people of God and don't understand the full nature of the cost that this will have upon our lives to pursue obedience to our master because of his love for us, then we will never know true community as a church. We will never know this kind of bond and affection that we see on display before us in this passage between Paul and the Philippians that led them to give of their time, to give of their effort, to give of their money, to lay down their lives and love somebody else in obedience to Jesus. I want to say that I think some of this one about the cost has a lot to do with the fact that in the early days, the church was a minority community. There weren't that many of them around. They couldn't choose to go to a church two floors down like you can. <laughs> they didn't have another church in the city. They were a minority. They were a persecuted minority. And this was their life. How do we recover that in the church today? I would suggest it begins by beginning to make sacrifices for one another. To lay down our lives for one another. Give up a day and go spend a day with somebody who's lonely. Give up some of your plans on your precious calendar to go and spend time with somebody that you've noticed tonight may need you just to come alongside and to listen. That's the way we'll begin to re recapture this sense of our mission together that, that breeds true community. And I want to say that we'll never have true community if we don't understand the nature of everyone else who calls upon the Lord Jesus. The nature of how we see others in Christ. And what I mean by this is that we, we don't uh, just see the people at Church of the Cross in this way, but we see the church downstairs in this way. We see the Chinese church that met in this room at 1 o'clock this afternoon in this way. We see Ruggles Baptist in this way. In other words, we have to recover in some way a sense of the fact that we are all, not just those of us in this little community, but all of us who claim the name of Jesus as Lord, are family and we're partners. And we're partners together for the gospel. A week and a half ago, I was in some of your home at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary for what was known as the church fair. And the church fair was like heaven on earth. Not really, actually. It was kind of the opposite. We were together with all these churches. Ben and I went up there. All these churches that come together. And I'm telling you, I hadn't felt a stiffer place in a long time. I hadn't felt a sense of com com competition and, and kind of a like, you stick your nose down on the ground so that we don't have to talk to each other because you're a sort of a threat to me into my church, my kingdom. And I feel like I was part of it. I have to repent of that. But what happens when you run into somebody from the church of Jesus Christ, universal, who's different from you, who worships in a different place, who has a slightly different theology from you? How do you look upon that person? Do you see them in this way that Paul saw the Philippians? I want to say, and that the Philippians saw Paul, we have to recover this sense of who people are in Jesus if we're going to experience true community. So my encouragement and exhortation to all of you is to go out from this place and be a servant to everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus. Whatever they believe. So long as they believe in him. How do you see other people on your block? How do you see other people at the seminary? How do you see other people on your campus? How do you see other people in your workplace who claim to be servants of Christ? Do you see them as your partners? It's not competitors 
It's a common purpose to do our master's bidding. It's a common enemy who's trying to thwart the church at every turn, and this is one of his favorite ways to do it, is to make us competitors. It's, a, it's common resources. Share what you have. Let's bless the churches that we know, and let's see their ministries and missions increase, and it's a common life, the life that we have in the Lord Jesus. When the gospel goes forth in power, we meet Jesus, who's at the center of the gospel and we're made his slaves. And we take on an entirely new and different identity to do his bidding, to go on mission together. We lay down our lives for the advancement of his name and of his glory in the world. That's our call. And that is how Philippians 1, 3 through 8 tells us that we experience true community. That's how our relationships deepen and grow. Not because we get together and have a good time, but because we link arm in arm and go out with a common enemy, with a common goal, with a common purpose, on mission to proclaim the name of Jesus in word and in deed in our life together. That's how we walk forward and experience true community. So let me invite you to a place of repentance tonight. I know I need to repent of many things about this. Where we've taken over our lives from our master Jesus, where we've co-opted the things that God has given us to serve our own ends, where we've looked upon our brothers and sisters in the family as competitors and as, as people with whom we are to avoid and not to serve, where we've put up our own walls and boundaries to being a true community and family together and said, enough, not, not any further. But let's come to a place collectively, to a place of repentance, that we might experience this kind of true community not for which just we in the church are longing. And if you're here tonight in investigating Jesus, I would suggest to you that every human being is longing for community and every human being is longing for purpose. And those are two things that we find deeply in Christ and in this passage tonight. It's people with whom we partner together, which deepens our bonds in a purpose that is God-given and for which each one of us was made and created. We have a unique opportunity at the beginning of our life together as a church plant in the city of Boston to experience true community because we know what it means to be on mission together. We're setting a course right now. It's a blank slate for us. Will we be defined by this call to go on mission, to be on mission together? linked together in a costly way in each other's lives. I pray that we will by the grace of God. Amen.